Welcome to Physicians Off the Beaten Path, a podcast where you've set out to bust the myth that physicians can't venture outside the traditional clinical or research career path. My name's Shad, and I'm an MD and Harvard MBA interested in healthcare investing and consulting. And my name is Alex. I am an MD and Harvard MBA, finishing up an Oxford PhD in healthcare machine learning and a Stanford master's in bioengineering. And I'm interested in healthcare investing and entrepreneurship. Our guest today is Jonathan Ng. John is the CEO of Iterative Scopes, which is a pioneer in the application of AI-based precision medicine to gastroenterology with the aim of establishing a new standard of care for the detection and ultimately treatment of GI diseases. John is the chairman of Children of Cambodia, a nonprofit organization that aims to improve the lives of children and families in Cambodia by providing better healthcare facilities. He specifically worked for advancing comprehensive medical education solutions in Cambodia and Southeast Asia. John, thank you so much for joining us and welcome to Physicians Off the Beaten Path. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Alex and I have been looking forward to this conversation for quite a while. Obviously followed your progress through Iterative Scopes. We have a lot of mutual friends. Alex and, and your partner are in the same section or we're in the same section here at HBS. Uh, so th- this is definitely a conversation that we've looked forward to. And it was really nice digging into some of the amazing work that you've done over the last few years. So just to set the stage for our audience members, for those who may sort of not know your story or be unfamiliar with your story, can you talk to us a little bit about your childhood, John, and how and why you ended up pursuing a career in medicine and what made you venture beyond clinical medicine? Yeah, sure. Um, so, I mean, I, I grew up pretty average being that, you know, mid, middle class uh, upbringing, um, originally from Singapore. Um, and yeah, pretty much unremarkable. Had a really caring family, you know, while being middle class, didn't really want for much. Um, and also didn't really want to be a doctor uh, growing up. Um, I think if you had asked me when I was five years old or seven years old, 10 years old, I, my lifelong dream was really to be a garbage collector. Uh, I think I, that was in, in part to antagonize my mom. Um, but, you know, I think at some point it became more real than it should have been. Um, but yeah, um, yeah. And then, um, you know, growing up, I also, I guess I, one of the things I did have was an opportunity to travel, um, on the occasion. And, um, what made me really, what made me want to pursue medicine was one of my trips to Cambodia where, um, I had an opportunity to travel with, um, one, the parents of one of my friends, um, who are physicians and, um, they showed me what healthcare was like outside of Singapore and Cambodia as they were trying to, as they were, you know, um, emerging from the pop-up regime, Khmer Rouge. And I was like, you can't know these things are going on around the world and not do anything about it. And so that, um, it started off by, you know, not in the medicine space, but, you know, in the, um, operation space, trying to rebuild their first operating theaters, helping them to build hospitals. And then cascaded into like I think I can do more here. Um, I think I can help more people, and, and I guess that's essentially why I eventually chose um, to pursue medicine um, was because I, I viewed it as a great way to be able to help people. That makes a lot of sense, John, and, and I love one aspect of your story, which is that you wanted to do a bunch of other things before you sort of dove into clinical medicine and. 
One thing that I've noticed, which is somewhat different from my colleagues in medical school, you know, a lot of them, their parents were doctors, their uncles or aunts were doctors. It seems like they wanted to be doctors, you know, when they were two or three years old. There's nothing wrong with that, but it's a slightly different mold than the type of people we often get in our podcast, which is that, you know, some people want to be entrepreneurs before they wanted to be physicians or they were engineers or, you know, garbage collectors, whatever it is. Every job, no job is a bad job. It's just everyone had slightly different conceptions of what they wanted to get out of their career before they, for whatever reason, landed on clinical medicine. So I, I really love that winding path that you and a lot of our guests historically have taken. You know, you mentioned Cambodia. I wanted to dig into that a little bit more. I know that's an important part of your childhood and an important part of, you know, what made you who you are today. The region obviously has vast social, economic, and political diversity. You know, I grew up not too far in, in Bangladesh, and I remember vacationing and traveling quite a bit to Southeast Asia, whether to Singapore or Thailand and, and you know, a lot of these uh, other countries. And my understanding is that there's a, a lot of variability in terms of health status, in terms of access between the different countries in the region, but even within, you know, a country in, in the region. And the health systems themselves are at various stages of evolution. Cambodia, for example, I read, is dealing with very high out-of-pocket you know, expenditures when it comes to healthcare. And as someone who sits on the board of Children of Cambodia, which is a nonprofit organization that aims to provide better healthcare facilities and medical education resources in the region, can you talk to us a little bit about the problems facing healthcare in the region. What made you interested in this line of work? And I'm just especially curious, and this will be especially helpful for our audience, how has your diverse background, both as a physician and an entrepreneur, allowed you to contribute to children of Cambodia? Yeah, so th that organization is something I set up when I was 16 years old. Um, it, it's, a, it's a found purely philanthropic, it's not even non-profit, it's purely philanthropic in nature, um, where, you know, I think... When I was 16, I basically made that trip to Cambodia and, and you know, kind of committed myself to trying to um, do as much as I could to reduce this disparity that I was seeing. Um, I would say back then, um, we weren't even dealing with this problem of um, out-of-pocket cost. We were dealing with things like, you know, under five mortality being 20% um, and under one month mortality being 40% of that. Um, so much more fundamental problems in healthcare systems have come a long way. I'm you know, proud to be a part of that journey for the country in terms of being able to contribute um, to our region's development. Um, so I think, I think that's, that's, you know, not forgetting where we started from, like out-of-pocket costs, that's, that's a, nearly a first world problem, right? Where at some point in time, no matter how much you paid, you wouldn't be able to get healthcare. Um, so that's, that's a, um, you know, and, and, you know, that journey took me about 14 years um, through it. I think the diversity, that, that to me was an early insight, early opportunity to understand how healthcare systems work or didn't work. Um, it also allowed me to engage with, um, you know, administrators, with hospital CEOs, with, you know, across the region, across the world, um, who took me, who, who very fortunately took me under the wings to kind of saw the change I was trying to make. And, and provided a ton of mentorship, provided a ton of guidance and insight. And that to me um, was an early advantage that back then I didn't appreciate, but now I fully appreciate that I have, you know, somewhat of a unique 
insight and perspective um, in terms of being given it this early while not and, and, and also the the without it being driven by like say parental pressure or disorder, right? I've arrived here entirely of my own accord. And I think I think that's a huge privilege. Um, and a combination of many people around me being generous with the time, generous with the mentorship, um, and and then being entrusted with a great amount of resources over, across time, be it through philanthropic measures, through um, or now venture investment to be able to shape the world in, in a way in which I would like it like it to be shaped. That's that's an, that in itself is a huge privilege. Yeah, no, that's very interesting, and I appreciate your point about sort of the evolution of needs in Cambodia or the region in general. It, obviously, the easiest analogy that we all learn about at some point is Pavlov's pyramid of needs or hierarchy or whatever you want to call it. Basic survival and healthcare is fundamental, and we talk a lot about you know out of pocket costs in the Western context, and that sort of implies that there is at least a supply of healthcare that's available uh, <laughs> before you can actually even pay for it. So really, really appreciate that point, John. We, we spoke a little bit about Cambodia, but I know your reach in the region extends far beyond that. And so I want to shift gears a little bit to speaking about Singapore, if we can. As I understand, you co-founded one of many companies and organizations, whether for profit or philanthropic, you co-founded a company named Optimum in Singapore, which focuses on medical technology. And reading about this sort of led us to hours of reading about Singapore's cutting edge and vibrant world of medtech. As I understand, about 50 multinational medtech companies have established their R&D presence in Singapore, with many investing in, in sort of end-to-end capabilities, whether it's product design or optimization, validation, whatever it is. Also, about 60% of the world's microarrays and one-third of the world's thermal cyclers and mass spectrometers are actually manufactured in Singapore. And we'd love to hear your perspective on the healthcare ecosystem in Singapore, especially on the innovation side, and what can other countries in the region, or even the U.S. or the West in general, learn from what's happening in Singapore? Yeah, um, happy to share that. I I definitely wouldn't call myself an expert here, but, you know, I I do have a perspective. I think... You know, Singapore has always been um, a country that has historically tried, you know, move fast, worked hard, tried hard. Um, you know, the government has always been done a great job of being able to mobilize the entire population towards a common goal, um, which is then usually turned into a huge benefit for the entire uh, country. Um, so that's you know that's something that that I'm seeing continue to happen across like medtech initiatives. Um, that you alluded to, and it's something that I'm con- I'm proud to continue to be a part of. Um, so, be it through my first company that I founded, um, for context, we load balance MRI machines um, between public and healthcare, uh, private private healthcare systems, um, and we help to um, essentially shorten the wait times of patients who need the scans to be done in uh, in the public healthcare systems. Because you know my primary my premise there was like um, it really shouldn't matter what well, you know, whether you have money or not, like, you know, healthcare should be delivered in time. Um, especially if, you know, especially for essential services like MRIs for oncology patients, for example, which then becomes a barrier to treatment. So that, um, you know, that was the premise of why I started the company. And uh, yeah, it's still really healthy. I think Singapore is trying hard to establish 
uh, a medical technology system um, and, a, and an ecosystem. Um, I think this has been a measure of success. We're seeing early successes there. I'm very proud of what, what the government and what the private sector is coming together to do. Um, however, also understanding at the same time that um, it's not an overnight thing. It's, it's, it's going to be like you know, another 10, 20 years of effort. Um, and I, you know, for those who are looking for places to innovate, and I think Singapore is a great white space um, to go look at, I, I would highly encourage it. Yeah, no, I appreciate that perspective, John. And as you were answering, I was just thinking back to our Singapore case in one of our classes called Biggie. It's basically business, government, and international economy. Just reading about Singapore and, and what's happened there in a span of 50, 60, 70 years was just remarkable. And it's a transformation that just hasn't, as I understand, happened in any other country. And so I can't do that 60, 70 years any justice. So I, I recommend to our audience members, if they're curious, to read that HBS case. It's available online just for a few dollars. But yeah, really, really appreciating the conversation so far, John. And thank you for sharing your story. I'm going to hand it over to Alex for a few more questions. Alex, over to you. Awesome. Thanks, Chad. Thanks, John. Really enjoying the conversation so far. John, really appreciate the points that you've mentioned in terms of the kind of the fundamental needs in Cambodia. You know, I did medicine back in Syria and I worked there for a year and a half, kind of during the civil war. And I've seen a lot of these challenges happen there as well. Another reflection that I really appreciate the way you you kind of recognized and talked about the individuals who kind of helped you as mentors along the journey. I think it's very easy to look at uh, successful individuals and think that success came overnight. But the reality is, you know, it's a very sequential uh, kind of process that very frequently starts with, you know, building relationships and building rapport with individuals that can really help you throughout your life. So really appreciate your point there. You know, John, in 2017, you took a break from clinical medicine to pursue an MBA in the U.S. You, you told me your story kind of when we talked the first time. And I've also read that while you were training surgeons in Cambodia, you realized that many doctors had problems with identifying simple tumors. After spending some time in the U.S., you've said that this problem was not limited to Cambodia. Even in the U.S., doctors often miss early signs of tumors, which reduces, you know, the survival and prognosis of their patients. You founded then Iterative Scopes, which uses AI and machine learning to help doctors detect early signs of GI tumors and polyps. And earlier this year, the company announced that it has raised $150 million in Series B, led by Insight Partners, Clear Lake Capital Group, Johnson Johnson Innovation, and many others. And I think this brings the total funding of the company to around $200 million, which is absolutely awesome. Congratulations on that. Perhaps, John, can you tell us more about the vision behind the company? What are some of the most important goals that you want to achieve with it? And... How is AI and machine learning essential to those goals that you want to achieve? Yeah, sure. Um, the the way I see it, it's you know, this company is set up with um, medical knowledge in in mind. Um, you know, I looked at my experience in Cambodia, my experience as a trainee, and I'm like, the way we do things today is so unintuitive. It's like, you know, learning is about feedback loops. It's about um, um, trying to, you know, right. Okay. Right now today, we, what we do is we, we try to pass on medical knowledge to a combination of like textbooks, conferences, and then apprenticeship models. Um, the first two are, are slightly more scalable, but thoroughly unintuitive and usually not, um, 
not directly translatable to clinical practice. Like, you know, and that's why we have non-clinical years where we focus on textbooks and then clinical years, which we get real practice on. Um, and, and then there's the, the apprenticeship model, which is then the, um, you know, the, how do we translate um, this um, textbook material into, into real life practices, into, into real humans. And that's, you know, while that is, um, if you train in the right center or right under the right mentors, um, it's, it's, it's a good experience, but also it's thoroughly um, not scalable. It's just not scalable. It's unscalable, right? Where the needs of this world, the needs of the world today, it's, it's outpacing in a great way the, the, the amount we're able to output, right? The number of physicians, good physicians we can output. And, and that mismatch wasn't being kind of uh, addressed, right? And then the way I saw it was, one of the biggest things that we are we struggle with is is visual intuition, right? What you and I see, especially biology is complex. What you and I see, what Shad and I see, well, we might be seeing the same image, but we interpret them in a different way depending on a variety of factors: training, which textbooks we read, uh, what even like you know as you know whether you saw them in the evening or in the morning, whether you you know what's a lot, what happened, what happened to your last patient, for example, that has recency bias. Um, all the biases then add up to what we call as intuition today. And that, you know, has huge amounts of inter and intra um, observer variability. So I was like, what if I can, what if we can do away, do away with that, in, that bias? What if, we, what if we could quantify that information, right? Today, we, we try to quantify everything around the human body, right? Every single biomarker, every single clinical, um, clinical measurement that we um, no, of today we try and quantify, we try and capture, but why not visual? Why not, you know, one of the most important things with hard to look at something, either pathology slides, radiology scans, you know, endoscopic findings, and why don't we quantify these things? Um, so I was like, well, this technology is fascinating. What if I can use it to, what if I can use computer vision to quantify um, the visual part of disease so that we can now Firstly, describe and then measure and then use to model um, diseases better. That's the fundamental premise of the, the company. Uh, that's awesome, John. You know, my PhD is in the space of healthcare machine learning, and, and kind of my focus has been on kind of using AI during pandemics. And during that, I've done some work on generalizability and scalability of machine learning. And if we look at machine learning in healthcare from an academic standpoint, you know, there is a massive shift in how we approach AI. So I'm really curious to get kind of your industry perspective on it, you know, because previously, maybe like five years ago, we looked at building machine learning algorithms and proving that they are generalizable through doing external validation on different data sets other than the data set on which we trained. And we looked at evaluating machine learning through kind of just the predictive power of it, looking at AUC as a performance metric. However, today we're realizing that we cannot build a single kind of scalable model across different hospitals and different facilities because there is a lot of distribution shifts and differences in data and the devices that are being used between these facilities in the clinical workflows. And we're also realizing that predictive power is not the only important thing, but it's very important to look at the usefulness of machine learning models and how these machine learning models can really fit into the clinical practice and, and kind of provide clinically useful and meaningful input to the clinician in a way that improves the performance of the human AI team rather than kind of 
gives you very good performance on retrospective data sets that doesn't really translate into kind of clinical impact. So, you know, there's a lot changing in the space of uh, healthcare AI and how FDA regulates it. But we'd love to kind of hear your perspective, John, in terms of how do you look at the scalability of the machine learning tools that you're building for clinicians? And how do you make sure that you're kind of building tools that really integrate into the workflow of clinicians and provides them with a very useful input that can change the way they manage their patients? Yeah, no, that's a great point. Um, and I think the, the fundamental framework which I apply is like, um, it's much less about the algorithms itself for us. It's more about uh, the users, how they would use it, what's the usability, what's the use case, what's the indications for use, um, and making sure that, you know, as engineers, like there's a tendency to always shoot for like the 99.9%, and the more nines you can add to that, the, the better you become. But like that doesn't always translate or it nearly never translates into, um, you know, the, the willingness or the, the, you know, or the correct utility for the, for the algorithm, right? Um, and so being very careful there around, for the, around the entire uh, chain here, right? Everywhere from like, are you training on the right data? To um, are you are we using this? Uh, you know, are we using this on the right um, real world data set to like? Are we presenting then the output of this model in the right way and right fashion through the right means and distributing it through the right means? These are very critical questions that um, I think everyone needs to in the sector needs to ask themselves. Um, it's 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 uh, usually under underlooked and understated here. Absolutely. No, I completely agree. I think that's spot on. And many folks in the industry of healthcare machine learning should listen to those insights. Shifting gears to my last question here, John, you know, one of our mission statements with this podcast is to bring the attention of rising medical students and MDs to the vast areas of opportunity in which they can turbocharge innovation in healthcare and contribute to making important decisions that really drive the future of the sector. You know, as someone who has clearly defined their own path, what advice might you have for future MDs and those who are curious about making an outsized impact on healthcare, but don't really know where to start from? Oh, I would just say like, you know, clinical care is just one, if you're here to help people, like clinical care is just one way of it. Like I would, there are many ways, especially today, we refer to, we used to refer to like, you know, the care of patients as more of medicine than than than. Healthcare, but now I think I hear the the word healthcare um, much more often, and just you know, there's a much more holistic view to a patient now rather than just delivering medication and surgery. Um, so taking a step back and thinking about how you want to help people um, is an option that's always on the table for you. It, you know, it's, it's not a narrow as narrow a path as one might think. Yeah, no, I completely agree, and I think. It's really interesting to look at the shift that's happening in that medicine and medical care is becoming much more collaborative than it used to be. Like it used to be very heavily interventional and now it's to a very large extent focusing on on, on being preventative and, you know, managing kind of the full journey of that patient. And it's interesting to see kind of how medical schools are changing their training curriculum, which used to be focused on teaching these individualized skill sets to kind of fostering more teamwork and, and collaborative work there. Awesome. So, John, last question here is to finish us off. How can our audience learn more about what you're doing and follow the amazing impact you've had and you're continuing to have? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm quite active on, you know, um, LinkedIn, um, you know, drop me a message there. Um, you know, I'll, I'll, we're typically pretty open with our information. So our website has quite a fair bit of work, uh, amount of information. 
um, on our work. Um, and, you know, feel free to reach out to me if you'd, you'd like to know more, basically. Alex, that was such a great conversation with John. Really, really appreciated that particular episode. I think my main takeaway is a relatively quick one, but he commented about how his childhood dream was to be a garbage collector or whatever it is. You know, it was just something different from clinical medicine, which is something that I appreciated because in medical school, far more often than not, all of my colleagues came from families where every single person was a clinician and, and a physician. And they seemed to know from when they were two or three or four years old that they wanted to be like neurosurgeons or something. Again, there's nothing wrong with that. It's just that the whole point of our podcast and whole point of, of why I wanted to start this podcast with you is because I want to broaden the conception of what success means to physicians. Physicians need to think a little bit more creatively about how they can have an impact on patients' lives. We've talked previously about the why is similar for all of us. It's to touch patients' lives, but the how, meaning how we actually go about doing it, can be very different and creative. But it can't be different and creative if everyone wanted to be a clinician when they were two or three years old. Uh, so I really appreciated John's point. So those in the audience who you know, before they wanted to be clinicians, wanted to be, you know, entrepreneurs or investors or consultants or, you know, comedians or, or whatever it is, I think it's time to reflect on why it is exactly you wanted to pursue those careers and try to generate that impulse of creativity once again, as you try to, you know, trot off the beaten path. Doesn't mean you have to leave your career in clinical medicine and go be a policeman now. That's not the whole point. The point is to bring back some of that energy and impulse into your life and, and see what you can do with it. But that's my takeaway from this episode. Over to you, Alex. Yeah, no, thanks, Chad. I appreciate it. <laughs> it's really interesting because this, this episode it reminded me of like my kind of childhood dreams. I wanted to be like a bunch of stuff, but I think two remarkable things. One is like an astronaut and the other is a spy. And they're like completely unrelated. But anyways, <laughs> I think my takeaway here is point that John mentioned in response to my question about how he thinks about the usefulness of the machine learning tools that they build. I think it's clinicians are really busy. They have a lot on their plate and kind of adding an additional tool there is actually quite a big ask. And I think a lot of uh, new technology developers in healthcare may not be aware of this fact simply because, for example, they have not trained as physicians or they haven't spent time in the clinical environment. There has been a time over maybe like 10 or 15 years ago where uh, hospitals established something called like early warning systems, which is basically kind of systems that track kind of the vitals of patients and they give alert to clinicians when kind of the patient is likely to deteriorate or get worse. And after the implementation, there's been a bunch of academic research that shows that has led to something called alarm fatigue, where clinicians no longer kind of focused on the alarm or the kind of the predictions that were provided by the system because frequently they were wrong and kind of they weren't providing the clinicians with value that they can recognize. So, so, so many of them, for example, switched off systems or stopped paying attention completely. So I think the kind of the teachable point there or the learning point, at least for me, is from the conversation with John is that, you know, when thinking about developing a new technology and integrating it into the workflow of clinicians, 
there is two very important components to think about. The first is how can this technology fit well into the workflow of a clinician without creating disruption in that workflow? And the other element is how can this new technology provide the clinician with meaningful value that the clinician recognize? Because if they do recognize that this novel device or novel algorithm is actually providing value, they would use it more. But, you know, just if you have the best predictive algorithm in the world, but it doesn't predict something that's useful to the clinician, like no one would end up using it at the end. So I think that's my two cents there for the episode today. But over to you, Shad, to finish us off. Great. Thank you, Alex. I really appreciate that takeaway. For our audience members, join us next episode for more conversations with amazing physicians who have ventured off the beaten path. And remember to follow us on social media on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at POTBP Podcast. And to catch our latest episodes on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Amazon Music. And to get in touch with us, you can always email us at physiciansoffthebeatenpath at gmail.com or visit our website at potbppodcast.com. See you guys next time.